Oh yes, you're listening to the demise of the podcast with none other than Patrick Attaway. My podcast, where I discuss writing specifically today, Lunar Park, as we get into part two of the series on Brett Easton Ellis's Lunar Park. Before we get into the chit-chat portion of all of this, I wanted to first entice you, dear listeners. It's been a hot minute since I've informed you of how you can support Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway. And many of you have heard this spiel before, but I'm assuming that if you're an intelligent, lovely, sexy human being, and you're listening to part two of this, you listen to part one. Now, this is a free podcast, okay? And I don't ask you to do anything. You can listen to free all you want. You can keep it to yourself. It can be your little dirty secret. Yeah, you like that? Well, I'd really like it if you told more people about the podcast and shared it on your social media pages. Maybe you talked to your grandma about it. You know, things of that nature. However, if you would like to support the podcast, give me motivation to keep going as if I need any more motivation. You can support the podcast by buying my books on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway and you will find a whole array of books by yours truly. Poetry, short stories, novellas, novels. I've got the whole kit and caboodle. But if you're saying, you know, I don't feel like reading or I've already bought your books, Patrick, what more do you want from me? Well, guess what? You can still support me by listening to my music and you can find my music on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon Music, YouTube, Deezer, Snapchat, TikTok, etc. Just search for Lurking Vowel as in lurking around the corner and Vowel as in A-E-I-O-U. The other day I was listening to a podcast that inspired this podcast, This Is Not a Test, with the artist formerly known as MJP, Hannah X. Yes, it is Hannah X now. And Hannah originally hosted the show for forever, really, for years under her dead name, Michael J. Phillips. And Hannah is actually... One of the most amazing people on earth because Hannah started Bukowski.net. She started the Bukowski Internet Message Board. So I was listening back on an, on an episode and she was talking about herself in a way that I haven't really done on the podcast as directly as she did. And... You know, I realize that there are some people who are new to the podcast, you know, I hope to pick up new listeners here and there, and according to my Spotify stats, I certainly do. So I appreciate all of you, listeners old and new. Eventually, I'm going to have to get around to doing that sort of episode, but it wouldn't make sense to do it on part two of Lunar Park. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what I'm writing right now, what I'm reading right now have a little few minutes, maybe, a little few minutes, talking about uh, Zack Snyder's upcoming movie, Rebel Moon, 
I saw Saltburn last weekend. Did I mention that in the last podcast? I don't remember. It was very Brett Easton Ellis-esque, but set in England. And uh, I didn't know if I liked it or not when I saw it. But upon reflection, I think I liked it a lot because I can't stop thinking about it. And Murder on the Dance Floor has been stuck in my head all week. And it's weird being part of this global phenomenon where that song is popping up on TikTok and people are talking about Saltburn and they're doing reactions to before I saw Saltburn and after I saw Saltburn. I mean, Saltburn is just the thing now. It's been a while since I've it's been a while since I heard anyone talk about a movie in the way that I've heard them talk about Saltburn, even a superhero Marvel or DC movie. Usually people just trash those anyway, which gives me a segue into Zack Snyder. But instead, I'm going to talk about me. Uh, So for those of you who are unaware, I wrote a novel this year entitled Greenskin. Go check it out. If you haven't listened to my episodes on Greenskin, you should do that as well. Because that is kind of like a, a preview for the novel to see if you'll like it or not. And... I am writing my sixth novel right now. Already it's the length of a novel. A few weeks ago it wasn't, but I've been working on it for a hot minute. I think I've been working on it longer than I worked on Greenskin. The first drafted Greenskin took maybe less than 30 days. I loved writing that book so much. I love writing this book too, but it's a different kind of feel to it. And since it's from the perspective of Steve Sebastian, who appears in Greenskin, and he also appears very briefly in the novel Birch, and I've been kind of leading up to this for a while with him, you know, I I knew I wanted to do something with this character other than just have him pop up in books, although that is definitely something I considered. Having a, a novel entirely from this journalist perspective with lots of dialogue makes it very difficult for me to to read on the podcast, but I can certainly talk about it on the podcast. I am writing a section that takes place during the events of Greenskin, and I've been debating on whether or not to do it the entire time I've been writing the book, because originally the book had absolutely nothing to do with Greenskin. The first part of the book takes place several years after Greenskin does, and Steve does reflect on the events of Greenskin. However, I was reading through Greenskin yesterday, and I keep saying Greenskin, and I was making notes for this new section of the book. And I noticed that Steve and Wayne Pallidus have only spoken to each other about three times. And one of those times, Wayne fired a gun in his general direction. So there are only two real conversations that these two men had, and yet I think you could argue that Steve is kind of a minor antagonist in Greenskin. I certainly wrote him that way. He's a bit of a sleaze, but he also has a lot of good qualities, I think, and since he's kind of the hero of this novel as the protagonist, we can assume that he is. He's either a hero or an anti-hero. Well, to see 
Greenskin, from his perspective, forces me to look at how I've written the character so far in the novel and see if what he does during the events of Greenskin makes sense for his character. Because I'm writing from multiple different times in this novel. It doesn't just take place all in the same year, you know. I go to the future with 2025... I go to the past with 2018, go back to 2026, and now I'm back in December of 2019. You know, when I was writing my previous novel that I've said the name of so many times, I knew that I wanted it to take place around the pandemic, so I had to to put it right at the end of 2019 and have it lead into that. But now I'm faced with the other side of that, because if you've read Greenskin, you know that Wayne's, um, what is she? She's his financial advisor or accountant, Genevieve, a character that I really liked, by the way. She advises him about COVID. They don't call it COVID though. They call it Corona. Like we all did in the beginning. And she says it's going to be a great investment opportunity because what I was hinting at in Greenskin is that there was a greater financial conspiracy, not to say that in the real world that such a thing existed, but it was a great time to invest in things like Hulu and Netflix, for example. So now I have to... I have a bit of a quandary where I'm wondering, is Steve the type of person to purposefully invest in the demise of millions of people? Because <laughs> that's essentially what it is. He's not putting money into the virus, but you know, when he sets Wayne up with this documentary, which, to be fair, it's Searchlight, formerly known as Fox Searchlight, but Steve's directly involved in that. Um, I've had to come up with details of behind the scenes that we didn't see in green skin as well. I said it again. Um, I think that you're tired of hearing me say it, and I think you're probably tired of hearing me talk about it, and you probably skipped ahead to the 10-minute mark in the podcast, as we all do. Much like with, you know... WTF with Mark Marin and whatnot to see if I've stopped talking about my own writing and say, Hey, can you get into what you came here for? Patrick lunar park by Brett Easton Ellis. Do you want me to say that again? Five more times. We left off with chapter two, which is entitled the party and it takes place on Thursday, October 30th. I know that because it's at the top of the page. You do an awfully good impression of yourself. Jane said this after she looked me over with a confused expression and asked pointedly what I was going to the Halloween party as we were throwing that night, and I told her I decided to simply go as me. I was wearing faded jeans, sandals, an oversized white t-shirt with a giant marijuana flower emblazoned on it and a miniature straw sombrero. This is a ridiculous outfit. We were in a bedroom the size of a large apartment when we shared this exchange, and I tried to clarify things by raising my arms up and turning slowly toward, slowly around to give 
her a chance to check out the full-on Brett. Now, the thing about this is that this is not Brett Easton Ellis. Perhaps just the character is named Brett Easton Ellis, but I have never seen Brett Easton Ellis dressed like this, and his actions in this chapter, especially with a certain student, do not necessarily reflect the actions that I would see in his personal character. Now, last night, I was thinking about how we tend to assign certain parasocial characteristics and assumptions to celebrities and writers and uh, filmmakers. We idolize them. I was just scrolling through TikTok and I just saw random photos of Christopher Nolan. I'm like, who the fuck cares what Christopher Nolan looks like outside of filmmaking? He's just a person. So, you know, he has a life outside of making big ass movies, just like Brady Sinellis has a life outside of writing fiction. However, this is a different scenario because we have a character that's named after the author and a lot of people are going to go into this assuming that it's Brett even though in the first episode of this when we read the first chapter I said you you have to stop assuming that everything he's saying is anywhere near the truth I've decided against wearing mask I said proudly I want to be real honey this is what's known as the official face As I continued to turn, I noticed Victor, the golden retriever, staring at me, curled in a corner. The dog kept staring and then yawned. So you're going as what? A Mexican pot activist? She asked, too tired to glare anymore. I have Sprite Zero in my wife's white Yeti. What should I tell the kids about that lovely shirt you're wearing? I'll explain to the kids if they ask that. I'll just say it's a gardenia, she sighed. Just tell them Brett's just really into Halloween spirit, I suggested, turning around again, arms still raised. Tell them I'm going as a hunk. I made a playful grab at Jane, but she moved away too quickly. You know, the way that I'm reading this in a a quasi-comedic fashion as if I don't even believe what's going on. It's already starting is really farcical. You know, this presentation of fun guy, Brett, the, um, annoying husband. That's something that doesn't exist in real life. That's really great, Brett. I'm so proud of you. She said unenthusiastically as she walked out of the room The dog glanced at me worriedly, then heaved itself up and followed Jane. It did not like to be left alone in any room that I was in. The dog had been a mess ever since I'd arrived in July, and since Jane had been obsessing over a book called If Only They Could Speak, which I thought was an expose on young Hollywood, but actually an investigation of zoo animals, she had taken the dog through hydrotherapy and acupuncture and to a massage therapist. And finally, it visited a canine behaviorist who prescribed Klonoclom, which is a made-up drug, which was basically puppy Prozac, 
But since the drug caused compulsive licking, a kind of canine Paxil had been prescribed instead. But it still did not like to be left alone in any room that I was in. The party was my idea. I'd been a good boy for four months and thought something celebratory was deserved, but since lavish Halloween parties had been part of my past, we fought about this bash amiably. He keeps using that word amiably. Not amicably. Even playfully, until, surprise, she gave in. I credited this to the distraction of the upcoming reshoots for a movie she thought she had finished in April but that the studio wanted a tweak after audience testing proved clarifications were needed to simplify a totally ludicrous big-budget thriller that was impossible to follow. Here's the thing. As the host of this podcast, I'm going to skip this and get to the party because a lot of these details are misleading. Because Jane's not really... From my recollection as someone who's read this book twice, I don't think that Jane's a huge part of this novel and he's setting her up as being a major character in this when he doesn't even treat her with that kind of dignity throughout the novel. My cell phone rang again. Kentucky Pete was outside and having trouble getting past Frankenstein who then buzzed me on the intercom and said that someone, not on the list and dressed as the corpse of slim pickens there's an american psycho reference was waiting impatiently by the velvet ropes walking toward the front door i told pete hang on i'll be right there dude and then offered a drawn out ghoulish chuckle kentucky pete was a resilient dinosaur from the 70s that one of my students had hooked me up with overweight with long gray hair snake skin boots and a tattoo of an unthreatening scorpion he was smiling and held a corona in its pincer. On a forearm, covered with sores from the repeated use of non-sterile needles, he was the total opposite of the drug runners I had scored from in Manhattan. Trim, sober, good-looking young guys who wore the three-button Paul Smith suits and wanted an end to the movie business. To make up for his lack of sleekness, Kentucky Pete had a more varied selection he sold everything from lime green super Vitacan caplets to 2 milligram Xanax sent in from Europe to crack dipped in PCP to joints sprayed with embalming fluid to pretty pure coke, which was all I really wanted from him tonight. I told Jane that he was one of my students when she caught him here the first week of October lounging with me in the media room while we were watching a DVD of American Psycho. When she dragged me into the kitchen and just stared in disbelief, I stressed, Graduate student, honey. Graduate student. When Jane and I dated in the 80s, she basically had an ice cream habit. Sometimes she'd indulge, but more often, she wouldn't. <laughs> Not wanting Jane to see him, I needed to take care of business fast even though the house was now doused in so much deep purple light she could easily mistake him for someone in costume. If Jane ran into him, I would just tell her that he was a student dressed as the grizzled prospector. I let Kentucky Pete in, and after hesitantly granting him a margarita, quickly led him to my office where I locked the door and pulled out my wallet. He was in a hurry anyway. He needed to get to the college by eight to sell a large amount of dope to an affluent group of juniors. 
When he had asked if I had a pipe he could borrow, I opened my safe. He downed the punch and heaved a huge, satisfied sigh, humming along to the zombies singing Time of the Season. What's in there? he asked, craning his neck. And then, dig the sombrero. This is where I keep my cash and guns. I reached into the safe and gave him a crystal pipe that under no circumstances did I want returned after its use. I needed two eight balls of the pure stuff and a couple of heavy cut grams for drunken guests who were going to bum off me and be too wasted to notice the difference. After the transaction was finalized and a discount given in exchange for the pipe, I pocketed the tightly wrapped multicolored packages and led Kentucky Pete outside. Walking him across the pumpkin-scattered lawn as he admiredly stared back at the elaborately decorated house. Whoa, this place has been turned into one spooky shack, man, he murmured appreciatively. It's a spooky world, dude, I said hurriedly, checking my watch. Ghoulish, man, ghoulish. The spirits will be moaning tonight, my man, I said, maneuvering him toward the motorcycle parked lopsidedly at the curb. I know all about the darkness, dude. I am primed to party and ready for anything. Even though it was the end of October, an Indian summer had lingered, and I shivered at the incongruity of this decidedly non-autumnal weather while Kentucky Pete explained the origins of the holiday. I want to stop here because I don't notice a lot of these words thrown around in other Brady Stanellis books, not even in the shards, I don't think. These $5 words like incongruity of this decidedly non-autumnal, you know, that has been happening a lot so far. And in the last episode, I got tripped up on a few words. I skipped a few words here and there because it messed up my flow, you know. It's one thing to read a book silently by yourself, but to read it out loud and have incongruity of this decidedly non-autumnal weather, it doesn't exactly slip off the tongue. And reading aloud forces me to think about the writing differently. We're going to take a quick sidebar to talk about cocaine. Not that long ago, I was in a conversation with a friend who may or may not be listening. Hi, and <laughs> uh, maybe I should bleep his name out this time. Who cares? Fine. Somehow in this conversation, the, con- the topic of cocaine came up because I was talking about uh, an anecdote that my ex-girlfriend's father told me about the time that he tried uncut cocaine. And I'll tell you that in a moment. But essentially, two people in this conversation, one of them was my wife's friend, the other one was my friend. And I said, when you buy cocaine to snort, you're not just buying pure cocaine. You're buying it mixed with other things like baby powder. And... They argued otherwise. Well, I have an article here that backs up my perspective. Because the thing that you need to know is that you're not snorting pure cocaine. That would be uncut cocaine. And then I'll tell you the story after we go over this. According to the Laguna Treatment Hospital, American Addiction Centers, common cocaine cutting agents and additives 
The process of turning the cocoa plant into cocaine requires the use of certain substances, including gasoline and other solvents. Dealers also use cocaine fillers and cutting agents, some of which can be extra dangerous for people who use cocaine. These adulterants include household goods such as flour, baking soda, and talcum powder, boric acid, antiseptics, illicit drugs including heroin, MDMA, methamphetamine, and fentanyl. So, why do people cut cocaine? Many drug cartels will cut cocaine with additives and fillers in order to increase their profit margins. The most common cocaine additives are typically cheaper than the original substance and appear similar in color and texture. The story goes that a man who I once called dad, because he was very close to me, and I still love him. I just haven't seen or spoken to him in nine years. He was wild now in the 80s. And he and his friend had the opportunity at a party to try uncut cocaine directly from a dealer. Not a street dealer. Someone who brought the drug in themselves. Hey, would you like to try this? We're talking about a guy who was in a house one time and saw a bottle of something on someone's mantle and said, what is that? I want to try it. And it turned out to be windowpane acid. So the story goes is that they both do a line of the uncut cocaine. And well, uh, it didn't really have the same effect as regular cut cocaine that you would buy and snort and, you know, you'd have a good time or whatever. I don't know what it's like because I've never done it. And uh, according to him, their hearts started to beat so badly that they almost considered going to the hospital because they thought they were both going to have a heart attack. Well, it turns out that recently in Rhode Island, they'd passed a law that said that if you came into the emergency room suffering from a drug overdose, you'd be charged with a crime. So they went to a liquor store bought a case of beer each, went to a beach, pounded the case. They both had their own case, of course, and they fell asleep on the beach. They said that their their veins, not just in their hands, but all over their body, turned to black from doing this. So it's a much different experience than just regular party cocaine that Brady Sinellis is talking about here. Anyway... The guests started arriving. Costumes were fairly predictable. Vampires, a leper, Jack the Ripper, a monstrous-looking clown, two axe murderers, someone who seemed to be just hiding under a large white sheet, a bedraggled mummy, a few devil worshippers. And there were a number of fashion models and a plague-ridden peasant, and as expected, all of my students were zombies. Someone I didn't recognize came as Patrick Bateman, which I didn't find funny and had a problem with watching this tall, handsome guy in the blood-stained and dated Armani suit lurk around the corners of the party, inspecting the guests as if they were prey, freaked me out, and somewhat diminished my high, but another trip to the office reclaimed it. Clicks began forming. I was forced to meet a few of the parents of Robbie and Sarah's friends, discussing another... Tr- national tragedy before the conversation turned to topics about as interesting as last week's weather. The daughter who didn't get into the desired preschool. Unfair scholarly 
uh, and a book club someone had just started. I read that as unfair scholar leagues and it's unfair soccer leagues, but I like the sound of scholar leagues better. We should have scholar leagues. And when I suggested that they begin with one of my books, I was met with what could only be described as uneasy laughter. Jane was hiding her anger exquisitely by playing the charming hostess while I waited impatiently for Mr. McEnry, who was giving a reading in town and had called earlier asking for our address again. So after last week's episode, I looked up the pronunciation of uh, that author's last name, which is not McEnry. It's Mac something like that. But I'm going to keep calling him variations on McEnry or McEarney because I want to. I don't know him. I don't owe him anything. And I didn't really focus on anything in particular until Amy Light appeared. Amy Light was in the graduate department at the college and though not a student of mine was doing her thesis on my work, despite the consternation of her advisor, who had tried unsuccessfully to talk her out of it. We met at the same party I relapsed at. She was enamored of me, but coolly, objectively, and this distance made her far more alluring than the usual round of sycophants I was accustomed to. I played my own role distractedly, which I could tell subtly frustrated her. Yes, it was back to the youthful game playing I experienced at a co- as a college student, and I felt younger because of it. Amy Light was lithe and agile and had the perfect body of a big-breasted, small-boned teenager even though she was nearing 24. Blonde hair with hard blue eyes and a steely attitude, she was exactly my type, and I had been trying to get her into bed for about a month now but so far I'd managed only a few make-out sessions in my office at school and one in her off-campus apartment. She kept pretending that her purpose was obscure, as with so many things in my life she appeared from nowhere. She was standing with a friend by the bar and chatting up the werewolf while the eagles, one of these knives, n- ooh, one of these nights, Freudian slip, blasted out and I started to dance across the room toward her. Seeing my approach, she quickly whispered something to her companion, a girlish gesture that betrayed her innocence, just as I appeared directly in front of her, flushed and beaming in the purple light, lip-syncing the song, gyrating my hips, strumming the guitar. It was a risk inviting her, but she took a bigger risk by actually showing up. I winked at her discreetly. After Amy introduced us, This is Melissa. She's a harridan. And pretty hot as well. I looked around the packed living room and saw Jane taking David Duchovny outside to show him the fake graveyard. Was that wink your idea of an icebreaker? Amy asked. Want to play pass the pumpkin? I asked back. What does that mean? Pass the pumpkin? I like the shirt, she said, lifting the guitar up. I like the whole package, I said, looking her over. What are you going as? Sylvia Plass, divorce attorney. I took her hand and asked the harridan, Will you excuse us? Brett, Amy warned, but her grip on my hand didn't loosen. Hey, we need to talk about your thesis. 
She turned back to her friend and made a pleading face. Still dancing to the eagles, I dragged her through the maze of the party until we reached a bathroom that I made sure was empty before dancing us both inside and locking the door. It was so hushed in there that we might have been the only two people in the house. She leaned against a wall, casual slide, not really there. I took a long pull from my beer can and then spit out a small lime green spider. What the fuck? I thought you weren't going to come, I said accusingly. Well, neither did I, she paused. But, sigh, I wanted to see you. Yes, people, instead of her sighing, she says, but, sigh, I wanted to see you. (laughs) I took out a gram and asked, want a bump? She stared at me, amused, her arms folded across her chest. Brett, I don't think that's a good idea. What are these reluctance issues you have, I asked, annoyed. Where do you, where do they come from? That uptight little town in Connecticut you escaped? I busied myself with the gram and poured a small pile onto the counter by the sink. I'm just offering you a line. How difficult a decision is that? Then in a bachelor's voice, who's your hot friend? She ignored my tactic. It's not the line. Well, good. Then I'll do yours. It's your wife. My wife? Hey, I've only been married three months. Give me a break. We're still testing the waters. It took everything in me not to say, My wife! I hunched over the sink and hoovered up both lines with a straw and then immediately turned around and pressed into her, the guitar dividing us. When I kissed her mouth, it opened with no resistance and we fell against a wall. I swung the guitar over my shoulder and kept pushing up against her, an an erection pulsing in my jeans while she kept pretending to push me away, but not really. Somewhere during all this, my sombrero fell off. You're so hot I can't keep my hands off you, I panted. Have you ever played doctor? She laughed and broke away. Look, this isn't going to happen here. And then studying my head. Did you do something to your hair? I kissed her on the mouth again, and she responded even more urgently this time. We were suddenly interrupted by my ringing cell phone. I ignored it. We kept kissing, but I already felt uh, the pangs of disappointment. There was no chance anything more was going to happen in this bathroom tonight, and the phone kept vibrating in my back pocket until I had to answer it. Amy finally pushed me away. Okay, that's good enough. For now, I said in my sexiest voice, though it came out sounding merely ominous. My arm still around her, I held the phone to my ear with my free hand. Yo, I said, checking the incoming number. It's me. It was Jay, but I could barely hear him. Where are you? I whined. Jesus, Jay. You're the, you are one lost bastard. What do you mean, where am I, he asked. You sound like you're at some kind of party, I paused. Don't tell me that many people showed up at your goddamn reading. Well, open the door and you'll see where I am, was his reply. Open which door? The one you're behind, moron. Oh, I turned to Amy. It's the jester. Why don't you just let me out first, Amy suggested, hurrying toward the mirror to make sure everything was in place. 
But I opened the door, high and not caring, and Jay stood there, his hair fashionably tousled, wearing black slacks and an orange helmet laying buttoned down. Ah, I thought I'd find you in a bathroom. And then Jay turned his gaze on Amy and said, after looking her over appreciatively, it's where he can usually be located. I have a weak bladder, I shrugged and bent down to retrieve my sombrero. And you also have, Jay reached over and touched my nose as I stood up, what I am, am not hoping is baby powder above your upper lip. I leaned toward the bathroom mirror and wiped off the residue of coke, then placed the straw hat back on my head as what I thought was a ravish angle. So creative, yet so destructive, I know, I know, Jay said, causing Amy to crack up. Jay McHenry, Amy Light. I leaned closer to the mirror and checked my nose again. I'm a big fan, Amy started. Hey, watch it, I scowled. Amy's a student at the college and she's doing her thesis on me. So that explains this, Jay said, gesturing at the scene in the bathroom. Amy looked away nervously and said, Nice to meet you, but I've got to go. Want a bump? I asked Jay, blocking Amy's exit. Look, I've really got to go, Amy said more insistently and squeezed past me. And then I took one last look in the mirror and followed, closing the bathroom door behind us. The three of us outside in the hall were suddenly approached by a very tall and sexy cat holding a tray of nachos. I slung the guitar back across my chest, almost hitting her in the neck with the... But she ducked in time. Stevie Wonder's superstition was now pumping through the house. Meow, Jay said, and took a chip dripping in cheese. I'll see you tomorrow, Amy muttered. I nodded, watching as she moved back to where her friend was still chatting up the werewolf. Hey, I called out. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And I continued to stare until it became apparent she was not going to look back. Knocking me out of my reverie, Jay gestured at the cat with the nachos. I take it the thought of food is the furthest thing from your mind? Want a bump? I whispered into his ear involuntarily. Even though you're sounding like a parrot, there is really no other reason to be here. He looked around the darkened living room as a man dressed as Anna Nicole Smith pushed past us to use the bathroom. But... Is there some place more private? Follow me, I said. And when I noticed him taking another nacho, I snapped and stopped flirting with the help. I'm going to put my bookmark here for a moment. Because this interaction with Amy is interesting. I've been watching Mad Men here lately, and I just recently, today actually, so more than recent, watched the episode where uh, he is becoming possessive of the woman that he's sleeping with. Uh, He's cheating on his wife in season six. And she tells him, it's over. We can't keep doing this. We both have spouses, and I want to go back to mine. It's interesting how people become possessive of one another, and I can only speak as a man, so I'm going to speak for men, even though I was never elected as a spokesman for men. But, you know, I was in high school, and 
my senior year. And by the way, <laughs> this is not an admission to guilt to anybody I may or may not have been in a relationship with in that time. Okay. Um, but uh, there was a girl that I had a huge crush on, and we became very good friends. Didn't start out that way, though. Oh, no. <laughs> but the division pushed us closer together. I'll, I'll say that. Now, I was a good boy. I never made a move on her, but we taxed each other all the time, and I was pretty much obsessed with her. I was obsessed with her. And... When you get, as someone with OCD, when you get into one of those mindsets where you're obsessed with a person, um, you do a lot of things creatively if you're a creative person like me. So I was making my little short films in school and then writing a lot of music, writing a lot of lyrics, etc., etc. And I was making her... CDs. Uh, I, I made her a copy of Loveless, or is it Loveless? The My Bloody Valentine album. She loved that. Um, in fact, when we reconnected at one point in 2014, she told me that she had bought the remastered version of that CD. She was so proud. But there was one incident. And she told me about her drug use and how she would take any pills she could get her hands on, which only made her more enduring to me. You know, she showed up to a church that we were singing at high as hell. And, um, you know, I'd been looking forward to seeing her. And uh, she wanted absolutely nothing to do with me, not because I'd done something wrong, but because she couldn't focus on anything. And, uh, you know, that pissed me off. And when we were in the, the choir booth and singing, uh, we were being filmed. And the following day, uh, the gentleman who, followed, who filmed me, uh, his name was Tommy. We called him Uncle Tommy. He showed this to my broadcast teacher, who was the person who allowed me to make short films in his class. He said, I want to show you someone. And he pointed at me and he says, do you even recognize him when he's not being hyper and crazy? And uh, so my broadcast teacher came up to me and he said, uh, I saw you singing and uh, I've never seen you so still before. I've never seen you so quiet. And I said, man, I was pissed. I didn't explain why, but for some reason, me saying I was pissed, almost involuntarily, made him laugh like crazy. I'm sorry if you feel that I wasted your time with that story, but anyway. And who is this? Jay asked sweetly, kneeling beside her. Daddy, Sarah said again, ignoring him. She's calling you Daddy? Jay asked, sounding worried. We're working on it, and I said, honey, what is it? I noticed Marta on the outskirts of the party, craning her neck. Daddy, Turby's mad, Sarah said poutedly. Turby was the bird doll I had bought Sarah in August for her birthday. It was a monstrous-looking but very popular toy that she'd wanted badly, yet the thing was so misconceived and grotesque, 
black and crimson feathers, bulging eyes, a sharp yellow beak with which it continuously gurgled, that both Jane and I balked at buying her one until Sarah's pleas drowned out all reasoning. Since the awful thing was sold out everywhere, I resorted to using Kentucky Pete, who was very adept at obtaining contraband, to secure one that, according to him, had been smuggled in from Mexico. All right, people. The way that he's described this Turby doll, which is actually a Furby, of course, Black and crimson feathers, bulging eyes, a sharp yellow beak, and then he got it from his drug dealer who procured it in Mexico. What good is going to come of this? Turby says it's too loud and Turby's mad. Her arms were crossed in a parody of an upset child. Okay, baby, we'll take care of it. I stood on my tiptoes and waved at Marta, then pointed down and mouthed, She's here. Relieved, Marta started pushing toward us through the mass of bodies. And suddenly, Sarah was surrounded. Adorable children, I had begun to notice, had that effect on people. Put them in a room full of adults, and they were always the star attraction. Girls from my workshop and some of the Catwoman caterers were now leaning in and asking her questions in baby doll voices, and Sarah soon seemed to forget all about Turby as I slowly pulled McGurney away. The cute little babe basked in everyone's attention as... Don't Fear the Reaper roared through the house. An unsettling moment, but also my chance to escape. As I led Jade down the long hallway toward the door that opened into the garage, he said, You took care of that so well. Jay, she's six years old and thinks her bird doll's alive, I said, exasperated. Now, do you want me to stand there and deal with it, or do you want to shut up and do a line with me? You really don't know how to do this, do you? Do what? Throw a kick-ass party? No. Be married. Be the dad. Well, being married's okay, but the dad thing's a little tougher, I said. Daddy, can I have some juice? How about some water, honey? Daddy, yes. Can I have some juice? How about some water instead, honey? Daddy, I have. S- can I have some juice? Okay, honey, you want some juice? No, it's okay, I'll just have water. It's like some fucking Beckett play that we're rehearsing constantly. Jay just stared at me, grim-faced. Hey, but I bought a book, I said flippantly. Fatherhood for dummies. And it's helping immensely. If only my father. Okay, I can see what sort of evening this is turning into. Hey, how was the reading, I asked, switching gears. I like your little town, was his non-committal answer, and... I realized that the reading had probably been a bust. Not high, I would have wanted to pursue this, but wasted, I did not. I opened the door and ushered Jay into the garage and then peered back down the hallway to see if we'd been followed. I closed and locked the door and flicked on the fluorescent lights. The the four-car garage contained my Porsche, Jane's, Range Rover, and a motorcycle I'd just purchased with unexpected Swedish royalties. And I just noticed a miserable golden retriever that lay waiting for us in the corner, curled up against Robbie's bike. But Jay aroused so little interest that Victor barely looked up. Ignore that dog, I told him. Ah, yes, your intimacy problem with animals, I forgot. Hey, I dated Patty O'Brien for three months. And then, ready for a little action? Indeed, Jay rubbed his hands together eagerly. 
I brought us some very pure Bolivian marching powder, I said, rummaging through my pockets. Oh, the devil's dandruff. I quickly located the stash and handed Jay a packet. He opened it, inspected the coke, and then put it down on the hood of the Porsche and started rolling a 20 into a tight green straw. After I did two huge bumps from my gram, I wanted to show off my new bike. Hey, Jayster, check it out. The Yamaha Y2FRI, 152 horsepower, top speed, a hair's breadth, under 100 and 70 miles per hour, I purred. How much? Only 10 grand. Well spent. What happened to the Ducati? Well, I had to sell it. Jane thought it was giving Robbie bad ideas, and my argument that the kid doesn't care about my about anything proved totally useless. Like father, like start panting with eagerness and just do the fucking coke. Jay did a bump and then paused, grimacing. A moment passed. What's the matter, I asked. Actually, this baking powder is cut with way too much laxative. Oops, wrong stuff. I cut the heavy... (laughs) Jesus. I took the heavy cut junk from Jay, refolded the packet, and handed him a proper gram. Where's your guy, your dealer, he asked, still grimacing, licking his lips. Back at the college, why, I asked. And please don't take a dump in our garage. So your refund for that shit is unlikely? Sucka. That crap's for wasteoids who can't tell the difference. I just gave you the real stuff. You're so cheap, he muttered. He did two bumps and flung his head back and then smiled slowly and said, Now that's much better. Anything for a bud. So really, how is married life, he asked lighting a marbor and easing into coke chat. The wife, the kids, the posh suburbs. Yeah, the tragedy's complete, huh? I laughed howdly. No, really. Jay seemed mildly interested. Marriage is great, I said, opening my own packet again. Unlimited sex, laughs, oh yeah, and continuous companionship. I think I've got this down to a science. And the ubiquitous student in the bathroom just part of the package here at casa ellis i did another bump and then bummed a cigarette no seriously who is she he asked lighting it i hear today's college women are prodigious prodigious is that really what you heard well i read it in a magazine it was something i wanted to believe the jester always a dreamer I'm so relieved. I knew the whole suburban scene was a great idea for you. By the way, he said, gesturing at a plastic skeleton hanging from a rafter. Is this how the house normally looks? Yeah, Jane loves it, he paused. And you're still sleeping on the couch? It's the guest bedroom, and it's just a phase. But wait, how did you know? He just inhaled on a cigarette, debating whether to tell me something. Jay, I asked, why do you think I'm sleeping in the guest bedroom? Helen told me that Jane said something about you having bad dreams. Relieved to have an out, I said, I'm not having any dreams at all. Jay's expression led me to believe that this was not all he'd been told. 
Look, we're in couples counseling, I admitted. It helps. Jay took this in. You're in couples counseling. He considered this as I nodded. After three months of marriage. This does not bode well, my friend. Hey, Earth the Jester, we've met each other. We've known each other for almost 12 years, man. It's not like we met last July and just decided to elope, I paused. And how in the hell did you know I'm sleeping in the guest room? Um, Brettster, Jane called up Ellen. I just thought I'd warn you. Oh, Jesus. Why would Jane call up your wife? I tried to toss off this question casually, but shuddered with coke-induced paranoia instead. She's worried that you're using again. And I guess... Jay made a gesture. She's wrong, right? Haven't we outgrown all this tired irony? Weren't we supposed to give up acting 22 forever? Well, you're wearing a marijuana t-shirt at your own Halloween party where you just were making out with a co-ed in the bathroom. So the answer to that, my friend, is a definite nope. Suddenly, the dog had enough and started barking for us to vacate the garage. On that note, I said, we're heading back to the party. This definitely seems less like a novel about Bret Easton Ellis and more of a Bret Easton-esque novel, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Well, of course, the, read I'm, the, the way that I'm reading it doesn't really help. But how, how else can I really read it? Could I read that last scene straight, as if it wasn't just a couple of chummy bros talking? You know, I don't think that Brett Ellis and Jay McHenry really speak to each other that way. I don't even think they're that chummy together, honestly. And I've listened to a lot of interviews with Brady St. Ellis. I've listened to his podcast. I've never heard him speak that way. The way that he's writing himself in this novel is not like himself. So, you know, the only reason that I can come up with as to why he's writing from the perspective of Bret Easton Ellis, apart from fictionalizing himself and the, the meta quality, I guess, is, you know, he could have had another character and he could have based it on himself a little bit, much like Monk and Erasure by Percival Everett, which has been turned into a movie called American Fiction, soon to be out in theaters, people. But, you know, I'm struggling with this myself, as I'm reading this for the first time in a long time. And when Brett was talking about the shards, he said he was originally thinking about writing it from another character's perspective, under a different name, but, you know, he said, this is just me, so I'm going to write the character as Brett. But I don't know that he really took the same approach with this novel. And, yes, Patrick Bateman is, by and large, based on himself and his own experiences. But it's still a distinct character from Brett Easton Ellis. Whereas this character is named Brett Easton Ellis. And he doesn't really share that many similarities with him as a person. This persona is, I mean, I don't know him. So maybe this is like him. But as the reader, 
I am trying to decide whether or not this is truly a portrayal of the true Brady Sinellis or if it's just some wacky character that he's come up with and given his name. And it's fitting because we just read part of The Shining by Stephen King. And this is a, or billed as a Stephen King-esque novel. There's a quote from Stephen King on the back of the book stating, John Cheever writes The Shining, a strange triumph. Here is a book that progresses from darkness and banality to light and epiphany with surprising strength and sureness. And yet... We're in this chapter, we are on page 61, and not a lot has happened. You know, the first chapter was 40 pages, but technically speaking, this should be around page 20 of the novel. So let's read through it a little bit, and let's see where we're at. I rolled my eyes and muttered a curse under my breath. I looked down and sighed. She was wearing tiny white hot pants. These are the kids, I told Jay gesturing at Robbie and Sarah. Her look is glam, and pink is very in on six-year-olds this season. Robbie's wearing white hip-hop and now is officially a tween. A tween? Jay asked, then leaning toward me and whispered, Wait, that's not like a gay thing, is it? No, it's a tween. He's thinking of a twink. You know, someone who isn't a child or a teenager. Jesus, Jay muttered. They've thought of everything, haven't they? Our conversation had not deterred Sarah. Daddy? Yes, sweetie, why aren't you in bed? Where's Marta? Turby's still mad. Well, who's Turby mad at? Turby scratched me. She held out her arm and I squinted in the purple darkness but couldn't see anything. This was exasperating. Robbie, take your sister back upstairs. You know she needs her usual 12 hours and it's getting late. It is now officially bedtime. Then can I come back down, he asked. No, you cannot, I said, noticing that half his margarita was gone. Where's your friend? Ashton took a Zephyrexa and then fell asleep, Robbie said blankly. Well, I suggest you take one too, buddy, because tomorrow's a school day. It's just Halloween, nothing's going on. Hey, I said it's bedtime, buster. Jeez, kids demand so much attention. Daddy, Sheriff. Sarah shouted again. Honey, you've got to get into bed. But Turby's flying. Okay, well, you've got to put him to bed too. Robbie rolled his eyes anxiously and kept simping from the margarita. Something got stuck in his teeth and he pulled a green spider out of his mouth and studied it as if it meant something. Turby's angry, Sarah whined pulling on my green on my guitar until I knelt at their level. I have a green guitar. I know, honey, I said soothingly. Turby sounds like he's a big mess. He's on the ceiling. Let's get mommy. She'll get him down. But he's on the ceiling. Then I'll get a broom and knock Turby off the ceiling. Jesus, where's Marta? It tried to bite me. Maybe it wants you to brush your teeth and get into bed. Suddenly, Jane was behind me and above me, talking to Jay, but I couldn't hear their conversation because of the music. They both looked down at me with accusatory expressions, for God's sakes, Patrick, and when I motioned to her, she excused herself from Jay, and I stood up. Sarah, still clutching my hand, gave me a withering look. 
I suddenly realized I was waving a cigarette around and sweating profusely. The room was so packed with people that they were practically crushed together. Are you okay? She said, but it was a statement, not a question. Sure, honey. Why wouldn't I be okay? I sniffed loudly. This is one rockin' party. But your daughter... You're very talkative and sniffy, she was glaring, and you're sweating. Sarah tugged on my arm again. That's because I'm having fun. And look, all around us, half the college showed up and is already inebriated to the point of unconsciousness. Honey, you've got to deal with your daughter. Her doll's freaking out on her. People are complaining that the music's too loud, Jane said. Only your friends, Chica, I paused. Plus, I can hear you perfectly fine. Chica? Did you just call me Chica? Look, if you don't want to be sociable and can't be tremendously cool about how to throw a party, I found myself absently fondling a bowl of candy corn. There are students in our poll, Brett. I know, I said. What? They're swimming. Jesus, Jay's wasted and so are you. Jay does calisthenics, I said indignantly. He didn't get wasted. What about you, Brett? She asked. Do you get wasted? Look, being America's greatest writer under 40 is a lot to live up to. It's so hard. She gives me a scathing look. I marvel at your courage. Will you deal with your daughter, please? Why don't you deal with her? She's holding your hand. But who's going to greet the mystery guest? And Jane walked away mid-sentence and started talking to someone dressed as Zorro, who who was in real life a runner-up on last season's Survivor. I dragged Sarah over to Jane and said, Listen, Will you take Sarah back up to bed? I asked. No joke. You do it, she said without looking at me. A moment later, after noticing I was still there, she added, Get lost. We're almost done with this chapter, so I'm going to skip ahead a few paragraphs. Oh my god. Jesus, that's not in the book. That's my reaction to how many paragraphs there are. It was so quiet up there that You could barely hear the party downstairs. That's how large the house was. It was also freezing, and I shivered uncontrollably as I moved down the darkened hallway. I walked by Robbie's room. His friend was zonked out in the huge king-sized bed, the Steven Spielberg movie 1941, glowing from the widescreen TV. By the way, I'm pretty sure that movie is also mentioned in The Shards. I continued my walk down the hall and stopped at a huge expanse of window that looked out over the backyard. I'm sorry, the window with the hyphen between it tripped me up. People were swimming in the heated pool and sprawled on chase lounges. A group of students had congregated in the mock graveyard sharing a joint and another group was crawling around each other through the headstones. And above the headstones I noticed the moon and a a lunar light fanning over the field And there was actually a mist rolling in from the woods and drifting toward the house. I wanted suddenly to do another massive line and join the students when something behind me flickered, then dimmed. It was a wall sconce. Route iron and gold rimmed. One of the many that lined the hallway walls. A 
about six feet up from the floor. Tonight, though, they'd all been switched off. But when I walked toward the sconce, it lit up briefly and then dimmed as I passed by. This happened at the second sconce I passed, and then the third. Every time I neared one, it began glowing, and then as I passed the sconce, it dimmed again, as if they were moving with me, lighting my way down the darkened hallway. I started giggling at what I thought was a brief hallucination, but since it kept happening with each sconce, I approached my hope that this was a drug-induced vision no longer making any sense. So I concluded it had something to do with how complicated all the electrical situation had become due to the party, all the purple lights and extension cables causing problems throughout the house. That was when I told myself as I made my way toward the darkness of Sarah's room. The first thing I noticed was that her window was open, the curtains bellowing in hot night wind. I turned on the lights and moved through the faux French country style room and looked out the window. The guitar was blocking me from getting a decent vantage point, so I took it off and laid it gently on the cowhide carpeting that covered the floor. Below me, I could see the bouncers talking to two girls who were trying to crash the party, all four of them laughing and gesturing intimately at one another, and I realized the girls had already been inside and were now just flirting with the guys guarding the door. I also noticed the number of cars crowding Elisnor Lane and then moving among them, a tall figure dressed in a suit. I breathed in and stuck my head farther out the window to get a better look. The figure briefly turned as if he knew he was being watched, and I glimpsed the face of the guy who came to the party dressed as Patrick Bateman. I shuddered with relief that he was leaving again, another reminder to boost myself up. He was just a prank, I told myself. He was just the unexpected detail that materializes at every party, I told myself. When I shut the window and turned around, Whatever whimsy the room once held, cool, girly Crayola-inspired, had inexplicably vanished. The only real damage I initially noticed was that a small bookshelf had been overturned. I knelt down and pushed it back up against the wall and haphazardly piled books and toys onto its shelves when I remembered something Sarah said and slowly looked up at the ceiling. There were marks directly above her bed. I couldn't be sure at first, but as I neared them I noticed that these marks looked like scratches, as if something had been crawling along the length of the ceiling, hooking its claws into it. I began fumbling for the packet of coke in my jeans when I glanced at the bed, and that was the moment I saw the pillow. Something had torn the pillow open, clawing it in two and scattering feathers all over the comforter. The pillow looked as if it had been, well, attacked since the pillowcase was shredded, as if something had lunged at it continually, and when I touched the pillow, hesitantly, I recoiled, because the pillow was also wet. At that point, when my index finger came away slimed, I immediately wiped my hand on my jeans and decided to head downstairs and lock myself in the office for the duration of the night. I was going to let Jane and Marta deal with this. My first thought was that Jane's troubled daughter had caused this damage herself, and I would leave the pillow as evidence. 
But as I turned to leave the room, there it was, the turby. It was sitting innocently by the door. I had not remembered seeing it when I first entered the room, and it was just sat there, waiting, covered with its black and crimson feathers, its bulging yellow doll eyes, and its sharp, glistening beak. I realized somewhat sickingly that I would have to pass the thing in order to get out of the room. Stepping forward, I neared it cautiously, as if it were alive. When suddenly it moved, it started wobbling on its claws toward me. I gasped and backed away. I was freaked out, but only momentarily, since I realized someone had just left the thing on, so I composed myself and moved toward it again. Its movements were so clumsy and mechanical that I giggled at myself for having become so frightened. The gurgled noises it was now making sounded pre-recorded and filled with static, nothing like the abnormal bird sounds I had expected. My question is, why has he not kicked this thing across the room? Because I would totally do that. I don't care if it's my child's toy. If I'm in a dark room and a toy starts making noise, I'm going to break that thing. I'll buy my child another one, especially if I have Brett Easton Ellis's money where he has a house so big that you can't hear a party going on downstairs. I sighed. I needed to take a Xanax and I would go down to my office, maybe finish what was left of one of the grams, drink another margarita and mail it out alone. That was the plan. I was flooded with relief and I continued laughing at myself at how the combination of coke and the dollage struck something awful in me and that awful feeling dissipated entirely as it as I leaned down and picked up the doll I turned it over and saw the red light on the back of its neck was blinking meaning that the thing had been activated my wife's taking a shower right now <sighs> that's not in the book I flipped a small switch beneath the light and turned the turby off there was a whirling noise and the doll went limp as I laid the doll down on Sarah's bed next to the mutilated pillow I realized the thing was actually warm and something was pumping beneath its feathers. An unnerving silence had filled the room even though the party was dancing below me. I suddenly needed to get out of there. And as I turned away from Sarah's room something sang out in a clear high-pitched voice that turned into a guttural squawking. It was coming from the bed and an adrenaline, adrenaline rush surged through me out of me enveloping the cadaverous bedroom i didn't look back as i raced down the hallway the sconces flickering on and off as i rushed past them and i tumbled down the curving staircase heading toward the sanctity of my office i realized that for me the party had ended and so ends chapter two of Lunar Park. I do not believe we will take each episode chapter by chapter as this is not an audiobook podcast. I didn't get to do it earlier, so we're going to do it now. We're going to talk about Zack Snyder and Rebel Moon for a second. There's not much I can actually say about Rebel Moon because I'm mostly responding to the criticisms I saw of it on Reddit, of course. That always gets me going. But Zack Snyder, um, first of all, uh, to bring it back to Christopher Nolan and things I don't care about, Nolan said that he thinks that Watchmen was ahead of its time. 
And as someone who has actually read the Watchmen graphic novel multiple times, I will say that I thought that the Watchmen movie was a steaming piece of shit. I very much disliked that movie, aside from the sex scenes, which I thought were very good. So for a a few years before Batman vs. Superman, I said that Zack Snyder should be directing porn instead. I didn't like Man of Steel. I think Man of Steel sucks. I don't think it's a good Superman movie. I don't think it's a good movie, period. However, I don't know what happened. So the first time that I saw Batman vs. Superman in the movie theater, I was going with it with um, very low expectations. And I went with a friend who didn't want to see it. So why did I invite him? I don't know. I didn't want to see it alone. And I was confused by it. There were things that I definitely liked about it. I knew that I really liked Ben Affleck as Batman. I knew that I liked Gal Gadot as... uh, Wonder Woman. I had to think about that for a second. I thought that the least interesting aspect of it was actually Superman. I even liked Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. Now, what's interesting and funny to me is that people think that their opinion, even if millions of people share that opinion, is somehow fact. Uh, I assure you that it is not. I thought... Jesse Eisenberg was perfectly fine as Lex Luthor in that movie, and I was interested in seeing where they were going with him. And apparently, everyone and his father and his brother and his sister thought that they were moving way too quickly and trying to catch up to Marvel. Now, what ended up happening after the first Justice League, which, for all intents and purposes though it may not have been widely well-received by audiences, did pretty well. I don't remember reading many bad reviews of it from actual critics. But, you know, the DC Universe somehow caved to the cynicism of the Internet and it divided itself. It did not accomplish what Christopher Nolan and Zack Snyder originally sought out to achieve with each other. So, instead we had a bunch of movies like Birds of Prey, which I liked, uh, and then the second Suicide Suicide Squad movie, Aquaman, Shazam, that were seemingly unrelated to the universe that should have been built before they had a Justice League movie. And see... We didn't even get a Flash movie until this year. This franchise started 10 years ago. And we're not getting any kind of closure on anything. We never got a Batfleck movie. I mean, he was in more movies as Batman than any other actor. And yet, we still don't have a solo Ben Affleck movie. There wasn't a series or anything on HBO which was proposed, but never followed through on. And so... Instead, we have a a reset from James Gunn. And, uh, you know, I really like James Gunn as a creator. I think his social media presence and all the commentating that he's done and rebuttals from, you know, what fans are saying, it's all obnoxious. And so now Zack Snyder's moved on and he's making a what is supposed to be a new franchise. It was originally supposed to be a Star Wars movie and it's called Rebel One. 
and it's being released in what I assume is two parts because there's a part one. They tried to make a new Star Wars series a few years ago with Mortal Engines, and that didn't turn out well either. Um, I expect that he will get to see his vision through since it's just on Netflix, and it's the most expensive Netflix movie that's ever been made. I think it's interesting because I didn't expect this to happen because after the movie that... I can't remember the the name of it, but I really liked it uh, with Ben Affleck and Oscar Isaac, where they were uh, robbing the drug cartel. Oh, what the fuck was that name? I'm not going to look it up. I'm just going to let it simmer and wallow in my head. It's not Six Underground. That was the Michael Bay movie. Anyway, I thought after that movie, what they considered bombing on Netflix. How does a movie bomb on Netflix? They spent all that money on that movie they were like we're not going to do that again and yet here we are with an even more expensive movie so apparently everyone in Netflix uh, lied to us and there's kind of a visceral response to the poster because if you haven't seen the poster it looks like a Star Wars poster but it has every single character that's in the movie and more on the cover and the top comment on Reddit was the poster should have had more characters on it. They're being ironic and joking, of course, but it's just... After what happened with the DC Universe, and I I liked the, the Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League, don't get me wrong, why is he getting another shot at a huge budget movie when his last movie, that terrible zombie movie, you know, from all intents and purposes, I saw terrible reviews of it. Why are we still giving this guy more chances to do things? That's just going to be polarizing to people. And this brings me back to the MCU and DC where you have Millions of people online, well, seemingly millions, it's probably just a few hundred who are very loud, bashing them for all these things. You know, a few episodes ago I talked about the MCU and I completely forgot to bring up the last Doctor Strange movie, but there have been so many movies in the franchise and so many shows, I can't keep up with the ones that I've seen. And I loved that movie because of Brie Olsen as Wanda. I haven't... You know, for the most part, let's look at the last few. We're going to do this again, for God's sakes. The last few DC movies, yeah. Other than The Flash, you know, the last one that I remember really liking was The Suicide Squad. But I didn't like Black Widow. I liked Shang-Chi a lot. I liked The Eternals. I liked Spider-Man No Way Home. I liked Doctor Strange. I liked Thor Love and Thunder but I really, really did not like the second Black Panther. And I was very unimpressed by the third Ant-Man. But then we had Guardians of the Galaxy 3, which was really great. And now we have the Marvels, which everyone is pretty, you know, okay with, I guess. A lot of people say it's terrible. Then there are a lot of people who are like, oh no, it's a good time. But... It seems like everyone and even Bob Iger has agreed that it's lost its path. 
So the only MCU movie that we're getting next year is Deadpool 3, which is fine by me, but where did all of the work that went on characters like Shang-Chi and the Eternals go? Those were our new characters. And then Captain Marvel has been seemingly wasted on the Marvels to the point where everyone's wondering why they they just get rid of that character, you know? And then we have a new Captain America. We don't have a new Iron Man, though. We have no one to take his place. And Robert Downey Jr. carried this franchise on his back from the get-go. It was his charm as Tony Stark in that cool fucking suit that made everyone love him. And Zack Snyder, his vision was in reaction to that. You know, the Dark Knight changed everything. And so everyone was like, well, superhero movies have to be this way or that way. Meanwhile, Sony is still making movies like it's 2002 with um, Morbius and Venom and now Craven the Hunter and Madam Web. They're all shot like it's the early thousands. They all feel like early thousand superhero movies. It's wild, really. All that being said, I'm going to watch Rebel Moon. I'm going to go into it with an open mind, as I wish I had the first time I saw Batman vs. Superman. Because when I saw it the second time, I really liked it. And I still think it's a great movie. By the way, Brett Sanella said it was the best movie of that year. So, there you go. There's your connection there. This has been Patrick Gattaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading. Happy writing. Give me a kiss, baby. 